Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. All right. Well, good morning as always, Mike. How are you, sir? Good morning. I'm well. Other than uh, it's fall, so this little oak pollen. Mm. Like, yeah, get, it feels like you're getting a, like I'm getting a little cold. I'm not. But of course, these days, you don't think that. You think? Yeah, I know. I start freaking out. Yeah. That's oh, it. no. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because I have noticed my allergies have been going nuts. So that's probably what it is. I know. You sneeze in a park and it just clears out. Everybody flees. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Better park than in a grocery store or something. That's, that's true. And then you got the mask on. It's it's, mm, it's no bother. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, glad to hear you're doing well. So I was thinking we could use some time this morning to talk through uh, how to how to lead a team well with the kind of the the focus area on on people and working with people. So in yeah. my company, uh, I'm seen as a, a quote people manager. I'm in management. The idea is I manage people, and that's kind of the core of what I do. That's the main focus. So um, we've had conversations in the past on why maybe that's not the not the best frame to start with. So I'd just like to hear, you know, starting from that, I'm a people manager. Um, how do I how do I manage people well? Yeah, we're gonna open a can of worms on this because, uh, and also caveat here for listeners, we uh, I'm reminded Churchill said uh, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but then they quickly pick themselves up and walk off like nothing else happened, like nothing <laughs> happened. Uh, We've talked with a few people about this, and I can only count uh, count me two fingers any company or firm that I've that I've ever worked with or familiar with that has done anything about this, and that has to do with uh, that just a little over a hundred years ago, uh, management, which used to mean uh, accounting, that is, a, a, it was it was financial, turned into accountability, and it had to became about people. And we, the assumption became that you have to manage people. And again, another caveat for listeners, this isn't an issue of semantics. That is, this isn't a, a podcast that says, gee, we have fun because we really know how to deal with words. Mm-hmm. Um, God created by speaking, by rightly naming things. This is light, this is dark, this is night, this is day, this is male, this is female. By the way, if you ever wonder if we're in a post-Christian world, that last one I just mentioned is no longer viewed as legit. You get to name yourself whatever you want to name yourself now. Now back to our story. So Adam, what's the first thing Adam does to bear the image of God all by himself, which wasn't good. But what does he do? Uh, names the animals. Yeah, I know it's early in the morning. Why do you do this, Mike? I'm not good <laughs> at Bible trivia either. 
That's why I ask you. <laughs> oh, yeah. There. He names the animals. Why does he do that? Because uh, God told him to, Mike. Oh, that's a great <laughs> answer. <laughs> well, he's, that's he's... A te- <laughs> technically true and dry as shredded weed. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's he's practicing what, what God has done. He's, he's that's uh, right. mirroring the image of God. There you go. That's how to become one. And um, so God names, orders reality, actually orders the disorder. That's what we see when the earth is formless and void. It's massive disorder. God orders it by naming things properly. Doesn't doesn't name everything because he wants us as his bride to grow up. And so Adam names the animals. And he named so dog, cat, uh, cockadoo. What was a bird I had that I didn't feed over a while and it died? Cockatiel. <laughs> you can't say and, that over uh, here, Mike. <laughs> I know, I should <laughs> I think I told the kids his neck broke. No, no. <laughs> Which it probably did when it fell off its little perch. <laughs> but I just forgot. I, I, I forgot. Um, so he names these things. So part of, you know, the thrust of Satan's work has always been to break this connection between uh, the meaningful connection between words and reality. And so you could just name things anything you want. But a thoughtful Christian or someone who wants to be faithful to Christ is someone who recognizes that we name things properly. And again, if you think this is much ado about nothing, if I were to say to you, you know, Jesus is a son of God, most believers would go, whoa, 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 whoa. He's the son of God. I go, why are we arguing over an article? It's just semantics. You'd say, no. That really matters. Oh, okay, okay. Mormons say he's a son of God. Christians say he's the son of God. So when we talk about this shift from finance to managing people, this isn't just a, oh, who cares, so what? But it's become so much the norm that to challenge it, a whole lot of people, and that would include Christians, go, what? We can't do that. I manage a team. I manage a team of people. And I think it's fair to say the scripture says you manage assets, appetites, and animals. And that's about it. But you don't manage people. And there's some reasons why. Uh, But a good book on this is uh, someone who it's, it's, it's hilarious in some spots. Uh, Matthew Stewart's book, The Management Myth, Why the Experts Keep Getting It Wrong. It's a book published in 2009, 11 years ago. And uh, now Stewart had a leg up because he uh, studied the humanities at the University of Chicago, a great books school. And if you know anything about that, it means... What do you do when you graduate? <laughs> Figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> you pull shots at Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you do it in a very erudite fashion. Um, no. <laughs> so, and he had a uh, friend suggest to him that uh, we'll go into consulting. And he thought, he, uh, he said, what the heck's consulting? And the guy told him. So he put out like, 
I think 40 resumes and uh, didn't hear back from anyone except from someone uh, from London who was head of a big consulting firm and was going to be in the States. And so when they uh, got together, this uh, Londoner said to Stuart, how many pubs in London or coffee houses, one or the other? And of course, he, so without skipping a beat, he just threw out a number and the guy said, you're hired. And all they're looking for is, can you think on your feet? So uh, the funny thing is, he says three months later, he's winging his way over to Europe for his first consulting gig. And he looks at it and goes, this stuff's a pail of crap. He goes, Heidegger said this much better. Of course, the problem is most people can't spell Heidegger if you spot, it, spot them the first seven words in the name. They never heard of Heidegger. They don't know who he is and what have you. Well, this set him off on a track to eventually start his whole, his, his own management firm, consulting firm rather. But it was all based on the premise that we don't, you don't manage people. That's why the management uh, experts keep getting it wrong because it's a myth. People are not made to be managed. But he, his book is a, is a great history on where this whole notion came from. And it really came out of uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was considered to be the father of uh, scientific management. Yeah, I have read uh, that book, and and it is it is very good. the 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 wild idea that we have based so much on Taylor's work, and yeah, Stewart calls out. There's a lot of fluff there. There's a lot of fluff. But so you're saying we start off, uh, we don't manage people. So the That's frame right. is wrong. That's right. Now, another book you can read on this is uh, called Joy at Work by Dennis Bakke. It's a story of AES, which was, uh, I'm not having kept up, but at one time it was the world's largest distributor of energy. And this was before uh, Stewart's book. I think the firm, I think it was founded in 1981. But anyway, uh, is a thoughtful believer. And uh, one of the things they set out was uh, they had a, a four assumptions. And, the first, and one of them was that people are uh, thoughtful, creative, and intelligent. So we don't need to manage them. So he uh, actually gave a riveting talk in 1991. And he points out they don't have all these levels. They don't have an HR department. They don't have this, they don't have that. And yet he says they run billion-dollar energy plants. And they, they give responsibility to often very young people. But he says, but we don't manage them. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good book to read because you can see, especially as a privately held company for a while, just the tussle with the board uh, to continually hold up this notion we don't manage people and there was a business week did a article on aes many 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 years ago and if you read the sidebars it's not hard to see that uh, when one or two of new hires went through their orientation uh, they came to faith and a lot of it had to do with this refreshingly different view that, uh, that probably not said overtly, but it's just kind of leeches through the whole culture at that time that uh, you don't manage people. So what would be what would be a better approach or what would be a better word to use when it comes to uh, 
my people. Obviously, I can't go to my bosses and say, "Yeah, I'm not going to manage people." <laughs> <laughs> well, you could go to your bosses and say that, and then you get the joy of going to write a book about how I found work after I was let go <laughs> during the pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that is the uh, $64,000 question. That's a, that's the right question because um, a lot of it has to do with older notions of mentoring people, which here's the difference. The mentoring is more effective in the long haul, but it's less efficient in the short haul. Management believes it's more efficient in the short haul, but it is clearly less effective in the long run. So mentoring people, as Baki will point out in his book, is treating them as peers. They're not subordinates. Um, but also giving them real responsibility. And joy at work comes from the joy of doing what's called work signature. That, uh, you know, I did this. And it, that really bears my signature. I'm really proud of it. I like working this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it, it fills in some of the gaps too, because often with management, there's, you mentioned earlier, accountability, responsibility, um, but there's not a sense of uh, authority given. So right. it's really difficult if you're given a, a responsibility and something that you have to own, but you don't have the authority to execute on it. And I think I think mentorship gets a little bit closer to that. Gets closer. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, it's just, uh, oh gosh, I, you know, now that Kathy is working from home and I've worked out of my home for 30 plus years, but, uh, mostly, um, so I listen in on, uh, you know, I can hear some of her zooms and I just go, oh, oh, and that's, I hear that a lot during COVID is, you know, people say, yeah, I, I turned the camera off or they almost wish they could, um, Remember that old movie Speed with? Uh, oh yeah, uh, Keanu Reeves. Remember the, yeah, thank you. I can never get his first name right, so I'm so glad you said it first. <laughs> Say it again for me, so I can. Is it? I, I believe it's Keanu Reeves. Yeah. All right, yeah. and Keanu, if you're listening, we're sorry if we're butchering your name. Um, but uh, you know, he takes takes that camera and he films a loop, and they just run the loop over and over so they can do their thing on the bus. But um, that's what this, I just go, oh, this stuff that just, that, yeah, I think people would say, I wish I could film myself in front of this camera and then just run the loop so I can go off and do something I really want to do. <laughs> and it's because management just, it just is, you know, if you're the manager, it feels pretty cool because you're in charge of the meeting. Sure. If you're the managee, it's just, oh. Uh, and yeah. what you're, what's often conveyed is, you know, if I wasn't here, you couldn't figure this thing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've definitely seen that. So those are just, that's just one angle on it. Um, I understand because Zappos tried to do this, but they tried to do it too rapidly. And uh, it's called uh, holacracy. And I'm probably butchering that too, but you can Google that and, Tony Heisch was trying to pull this off, but it is the idea. There's something dehumanizing about managing people. And I think that that's what these few and far between are staring at. 
is there's something dehumanizing about it. I rooted also back to a hundred years before Taylor, the, the, uh, one of the great divorces between home and work. So again, the reason they're called cottage industries was the home was the economic engine for much of, for many societies. And, uh, you, you worked from home and you didn't. So can you imagine if you sat down with your wife, Maddie and said, uh, let's have a management meeting. I want to talk about how I can manage you. She would say, well, here's the first thing you can do. You can go too. <laughs> it's just, it's just, we do things at work. You'd never do at home. Yeah, no, for sure. I like, and that. you wonder, so you have to pull the lens out and go, what, why, why do we do that? Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea there thinking about how I interact with my wife even because I'm, I'm obviously not managing her, um, no. but there is an element to which I'm, I'm mentoring her and there's an element to which she is mentoring me. And I think I've, I've without necessarily intentionally going down that path, I've, I've tried to apply that a little bit as I'm in the office with my, my goal is to always hire people smarter than I am. And I think I'm comfortable with that because I understand I'm to mentor them in areas that maybe they don't see. And I expect to learn from them as well. But I, if I were coming from the frame of management, I probably would be uh, a little bit more insecure to do that, you know, because the, the, my previous notion of management was, you know, the, the, the smartest person or the best person in the room is, is going to be managing. And so if I'm going to continue doing that, well, then I need to be that person. I think that that's a great example. That's a, that's really hits the nail on the head. And, um, I too have read the best leaders try to hire people better than themselves and they're not threatened by it. And those become, have the potential to become not only professional, but, um, good friends and, mm. uh, good little, uh, there's several books on Lincoln and, uh, Lincoln operated a lot that way. And when you, especially uh, when you read about his cabinet, but he recognized that uh, in many ways, uh, Stanton's, Seward, all these were smart than he. And uh, so he didn't try to manage them, but he was particularly good. He was clever in how he built friendships where he brought them along. And as you know, some of them were, came in as severe critics and they, of him and they came out as uh, good friends. Hmm. But it's just a different, um, it was a different day. The uh, 1930s is the rise of uh, what's called the corporation. And that's what you work in. And uh, a corporation dispensed with the idea of company and a company you look carefully at it and you think of a restaurant in town, you can see what a company used to mean. What do you mean by that? You ever been to Panera? Sure. What's Panera mean? Bread. Company. Huh. That's what Panera means? Panera means bread. Oh, what, okay. is comp <laughs> what is, yeah, Com <laughs> Panera is bread. What does company mean? 
uh, uh, somewhere related to companionship? Co bread, break bread together. Mm. Actually, many at the uh, opening of uh, the business school at Catholic U, uh, listened to a woman from uh, Asia, at least she was Japan, and she was discussing her father's businesses. He was a devoted believer, follower of Christ. And he said uh, he started companies, and the companies were uh, every day at lunch. They all sat and broke bread together uh, because they were a company. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the executive lunchroom and the this and the that. Um, but corporations stripped all that out. Corporation uh, is the idea of the nexus of self-interested individuals who are bringing together uh, assets to leverage them. So the sum is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that's the notion of a corporation. And uh, you know, some of the early forerunners that would have been Vanderbilt and uh, 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 Standard Rockefeller and things like that. And it's just fascinating to see how they uh, began to realize you could amass these assets and actually corner markets. And so you have business just uh, goes into a whole different level. Where you work today, for example, uh, yeah, it's a worldwide corporation, a firm. And that's why Taylor was seen as an asset in, these, in this nexus of self-interested organizations because you could leverage the talents of people. Well, if you're leveraging them, you're treating them more as an asset than as a human being. And uh, so that's why management then became... Uh, caught on like wildfire and also because uh, Harvard Business School, uh, the newly formed Harvard Business School was looking for uh, some kind of intellectual property that would give it a trademark, it would give it an identity and they selected Taylor, even though Taylor had been a raging failure in uh, Pittsburgh with the steel companies. But the stuff sounded really good. It was great theory. Yeah. So if, if I'm working with a team, one of the things I think my company does well is they, they look at uh, individual development plans and, and they try to put more of a formal emphasis on how do we grow people. Right. Um, and so I can appreciate the effort there. It's not right. always implemented well, but as I'm, as I'm looking to gauge my ability as a leader, let's say a year from now, how do I know I've done well? as as a leader of this team and maybe uh, in my case it's a smaller team you know there's probably four or five people um let's say maybe a smaller team or even a, a bit larger i mean how do how do i know i'm doing well as a leader and what are ways that i can help uh mentor the people around me you know in other words sure. let's we're talking theory what what's actually uh an effective way for me to measure how how am i doing here sure yep well i think we've talked about this before but the uh, stuff by Bernard rosen on highly effective leaders uh, what we're talking about is finding some tools to determine do you really return authority back to these people and we're not talking about empowerment there uh, empowerment almost treats people like uh, toys and you're the battery and you plug them in and empower them that's not the solution either there's a lot of fluff around empowerment. Uh, I would suggest this. Um, 
do a review, but you say, uh, tell me what you think people would say are my three greatest, uh, what do I, uh, what are the three things you, that I bring to our working relationship that you really uh, appreciate? And then uh, I want you to write three things that you don't think, uh, that you think probably uh, people are reluctant to, to tell me. Mm, I like that wording, reluctant to tell me. That's good. That's right. Now, there's an old adage that uh, if you're really successful, you never get an honest performance review after the age of 35. Sure. Because everybody. Yeah. Keep tooting your horn. Well, I just, you know, I, you know, the, uh, the, the other adage is, uh, you know, if over time uh, you no longer open your own fire door, um, you don't actually uh, have to prepare meals the way most people have to prepare meals. Uh, you don't have to actually get down your hands and knees and scrub your floor. Uh, if you don't actually uh, rub shoulders with the poor uh, you change mm. and you become uh less you have you have a diminished capacity to actually invite and make people feel that they honestly can without threat of punishment tell you the unvarnished truth so I would say one of the things you can do, Pat, is uh, develop a consiglior. What do you mean by that? There you go. So in um, Mario Puzo's uh, books, The Godfather, uh, The Godfather always had a consiglior. That was someone who could tell him the unvarnished truth without having his head lopped off. In King Arthur's court, it was Dagonet the court jester and great leaders have people who don't have to preface, don't have to be polite. They have to be respectful, but they don't have to preface. Do you know what I mean by preface? Sure. Uh, Mike, don't take offense to this. <laughs> yeah. We've got to lob in a lot of shells to the beach to really soften up the beachheads. You can land, you know, bring the landing craft up, drop the door, and unrun the Marines, and they say you're full of crap. Don't have to do that. I watch a lot of leaders operate. I watch a lot of times when people are hesitant. I was once in actually in a round table in a business where two, three people slipped me notes urging me to press into an issue. Why were they slipping notes to me? Mm. I'm guessing you were the outsider in this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you won't get it. Uh, or at least if you get a target on your head, it won't be as big of a deal. <laughs> They're telling you, uh, our boss really can't tolerate hearing this mm. now again uh, a simple way to to better understand this perhaps or look at it from a different angle is if you have that in a marriage what kind of a marriage do you have 
Not a good one. I guess that's a rhetorical question. That was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a good one. Yes. <laughs> you have what's called a plateaued marriage. And I guess in a way, that's what is uh, my lament about management is people plateau. And here's what, you know what a plateaued marriage is? I mean, I'm assuming it's, it's gotten as high or as good as it's going to get. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a study once of some five or 600 marriages said that within four years, most had begun to plateau. In, uh, and Kathy and I have done a, you know, a fair amount of marital counseling. We, we do a lot of premarital. We're, do, we're doing a couple right now that's getting married next month. And then uh, we talked to him about plateaued marriages. And the plateaued marriage, the reason they plateau is uh, you simply innocently might have gone into some area and boom, uh, you, you step on a landmine. And generally that means you're not going to do that again. So you get to be our age and we can get around couples and we know there are all sorts of things they can't talk about without getting into a fight. Mm, right. So you just don't talk about them. And in the same way, one of the problems with management, where you, you know, I'm superior and you're inferior, is you slowly set up that the inferior person, management just plateaus these people. And it plateaus them because they can't come to the supposed superior, the boss or whoever's managing them and say, do you know how you come off when you do this and that? You had to preface and be polite and explain and really surround the whole thing. I don't mean to offend you. I don't mean to... You're already telling them, we've already plateaued. Yeah. Mentoring doesn't do that. Mentoring really does say, as the original fable was about, I want you to learn to walk where I've walked so you can, you can walk this thing better than perhaps I ever would. But it is what's called more effective but less efficient initially. Why is that? Well, I was going to say, what, I mean, why do you think that is? I have uh, thoughts, particularly when it comes to if we're looking at management in the classic is accountability, you know, deadlines. So you are sort of whipping the horse, so to speak. Um, but I've also seen, I've seen the long-term implications of that. Is that, is that what you're driving towards? Sure. So there's no doubt that the uh, uh, mentoring and effectiveness, for example, it often entails asking a series of questions. I watched, I can hear the toes tap inside someone's shoes to go, we ain't got time for this. I know the answer. And uh, I only got a few minutes. We got to cut to the chasing and get this thing done. I don't have time to ask questions. Yeah, I mean, that so makes sense. Yeah. That person's going to drive right to the answer. And you're going to limit the ability of the team to come up with the answer. Yeah. I had... Uh, <laughs> He's a good friend, but he's in a company that I worked with their leadership team. He's famous for saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, 
And what he was saying was, uh, let's cut to the chasing. Hmm. Da, 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 da. Um, well, well, when you, when you announce at the end of the day, what you're doing is just speeding the film up and say, this is all fine, but let's, let's cut to the chasing. Mm. Are we going to do it or aren't we? Are, is the deadline Friday or not? Now, I appreciate that leaders have a bias for action. I get that. And that's exactly right. But it's what we do to get to that action that determines whether or not we're managing people or largely determines or whether we're mentoring because you would want in the end for your team that if you get hit by the proverbial bus, they are intelligent, thoughtful, and creative people that would say, hey, what do you think? Should this Friday at 5 o'clock be the deadline on that? And you look around the room and he goes, yeah, yeah, that part should. Okay, so we all agree that's good. Okay. That's different. That's mentoring. That's treating people as people versus, uh, so we're going to do this and you're going to do this and we're going to do that. Everybody agree? I mean, I've been in those meetings. What are you going to say? It's just like at a wedding. You ever been in a wedding? <laughs> Does anyone object? <laughs> have, have you ever heard anyone raise their hand? <laughs> no. Now, here's the, here's the really sad thing. Have you ever intuited there are a lot of people here who have misgivings about this couple? Yep. Yeah, it's tough. Hmm. Yeah, it's not the place to bring it up. Right. But it also tells you there apparently never was a place to bring it up. So the challenge... The challenge here, and when I think about a lot of this fits what I do today, I think, uh, with my team. And I'm happy about that. Uh, I do think we, our teams focus more on mentorship and, and I think you could reasonably say they wouldn't feel managed. But when I think of my own career growth and the, <clears throat> the management above me, looking for well how is my how am i as a manager how am i doing um i think my team would give good feedback on that probably and i love the questions that you posed earlier as a way for me to grow um but but what are what are those things that i could even say of well this is this is where i expect to be a year from now with the team or this is what i expect to see like can you even say those things with, with this model oh sure uh yeah again the difference is You've said my team versus mm. we. Well, which is it? Yeah, yeah. It'd be we. It ought to be we. Yeah. yeah. So even that is somewhat the giveaway of uh, our team. Yeah. Well, uh, I would say our team would be, uh, and by the way, if you pose these as questions versus uh, statements of fact, it would be something like this. Hey, hey team, what would we Would we, would we hope that one day the entire company would be more like what we're enjoying here? Hmm. Yeah. Well, how would that happen? Say, what would, what could possibly could we benchmark for a year from now? It might be that, uh, and again, this is the, this is the power of 
to management. When you ask a question like that, you're not putting your thumb on the scale. What's that mean? Uh, applying weight, applying pressure. Well, it's an old adage that it's an idiom that means uh, you're kind of tilting in your direction. Mm. Everybody, you know, anybody with half a brain can sort of, I know what he's saying. This is what he wants me to say. Yeah. Versus if they were to say, uh, if you were to say, uh, well, what would be something we could benchmark a year from now that might actually go up and down the corporate ladder? A great question that treats them like a mentor is, you are an agnostic as to what they say. You don't know. You haven't said, like, for example, like, um, if the reviews were, had two, three questions that nobody else is asking in their teams, that would really, so you just put your thumb on the scale. Mm. They'll all go, that's a great idea, Pat. We'd have never thought of that. Really? Well, it's because Pat's smarter, smartest guy in the room. So that's the power of asking a question where our team, goes, huh, I never thought about that, Pat. That's a really good question. That, by the way, is a marker of mentorship. That's a really good question. Yep. That's a statement. Why is that a marker of mentorship? Because it, this goes back for listeners. Uh, I highly recommend some of our uh, previous conversations around high-performance leadership, but it goes back to this idea that they have now returned authority to you and said, I, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that before. You've clearly posed something I haven't thought of. That's right. So you've widened my lens. I really appreciate that, Pat. But you haven't given me an answer. You've just widened my lens. Now, again, I can hear that a lot of these, you know, I call them kind of gum-chomping business leaders. Rat-tat-tat. I ain't got time for this. Um, it just doesn't appeal to them because they're pretty sure they know the answer. They read this book or they saw that or they blah, blah, blah. Versus you, you find yourself thinking, you know, I'm going to take two, three minutes here because in the grand scheme of things, it's only two, three minutes, but it might be more effective. And I'm going to go, what do you think, gang? And, um, and you are at that point an agnostic. Now, here's the real great thing, potentially the upside. If you treat people as full, creative, and intelligent, these are people made in the image of God. You don't have to tell them that, but treat them that way. And someone might come up with something you never thought of that's really good. Or you might hear something that's really hard to hear. Like someone might say, well, Pat, if you're really serious about this, uh, I don't think you're the person to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There, isn't that true? Yeah. The power of exit interviews is that's when people act like a consigliere and they give you the unvarnished truth. Well, that's because I think you're a dumbass. And they go, well, how come you never told me when you were here? Well, I needed the job. <laughs> you see this at, uh, when couples get divorced, all this bile 
that was in there that they didn't know how to tr deal with. But now that they had, they had, they're not planning on seeing each other anymore, they're going to start telling you the unvarnished truth. Well, that's not helpful. So that's this is the power of mentoring is you really do give up control. And we that is just an issue for any leader, control. Sure. Well, it just is. I'm really glad you use that as an example because I've even seen almost too much in that direction. And what I mean by that is I think the the tactics or the skillful nature of being a mentor comes in your ability not only to pose these questions but also to help flush out that creativity. Because I have sat in meetings where the leader has said, so you know, how do we do this thing? And the team is just, there's just empty blank stares. You know, we don't know, we have no idea. And that's essentially where the, the conversation ends. That, that's a good example. What would you do right at that point I, as an I, effective leader? As an effective leader? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I would try to probe more questions. I mean, I, that, that's, that's the gist of what I've, I've pulled out of this or I've, uh, yeah, I, I would try to drive more questions or at least have questions prepared ahead of time for that situation. Yes. The other thing you can do that I think is effective leadership is you look around and go, either what I've asked wasn't the right question or we haven't given it up, but I'm going to hit pause right now. We're going to get together tomorrow. And I'd like to, to tell me, why is that such a hard question? Oh, that's good. And then uh, if you want to go, if you want to run the risk, I think it'd be a healthy risk, you go. And tell me if it has to do with my style of leadership. Yeah, that's good. So again, this kind of leadership doesn't, not that we never had deadlines. Of course you do. And work in the real world. I get all that. But to actually hit the pause button, give them the metaphor that also lets them know this isn't, I'm exasperated with you deadheads and I'm giving you 24 hours to come up with an answer. <laughs> I'm not going to tolerate this. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, this goes back to Pat again. Uh, people, we're made in the image of God and yeah, I, you know, I don't want people tiptoeing around saying I got to get the right words that's not the point the point is sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me that's not true they do hurt and because, because words are not just words, they convey great, great impact. They, they convey something powerful in the universe. And uh, skillful leaders understand that and they go, you know, there's a reason why Jesus, you know, the, first of all, the scriptures say, therefore, let your words be few, which might. You know, listeners might go, well, then why are you guys still talking? Uh, and then uh, 
Jesus said, you're going to give an account for every careless word you give. You're going to give an account. Mike, you're going to give an account for every careless word spoken. Now, careless means you didn't take care of what you said. Well, why would he want us to take care of what we say? Because it powerfully reflects and depicts God. And so you, it's fine to say, yes, at your work, you're trying to do what Jesus would do. That's kind of has a, such a generic feel to it. I don't think it's very, uh, it's, a, it's, Dallas Willard said it's not even the right question. The right question is, who would Jesus be? And if you were the kind of person Jesus was, then you would do what he did. So for us, for me, it goes back to if we are the bride of Christ and we want to be, to want to become one with hubby, then we want to be who he was. And it's profound what he says that's recorded that we've seen because not only because he's God, but because these are words. And so you want to be that kind of a leader that asks things where people come back and say, say, oh, that's a really good question, Pat. Or that that's really a skillful, that's really skillful what you did in that meeting. I too felt like, wow, absolute sounds. And they didn't shake you at all. You just hit the pause button. That's really helpful, Pat. Or I'll guarantee you, if you say, Tell me the one thing at the end of a performance review. Tell me the one thing that nobody else is telling me that you've often thought, Pat, you'd benefit from knowing this. Yeah, that's such a good question. Oh, man. I, I sat in a review or was requested to give a review that was, you know, tell me something that uh, I'm doing well that you want me to keep doing. And... Uh, that, that was the question. What am I doing well that you want me to keep doing? And what am I not doing that you want me to start doing? <laughs> and first I laughed because I said, where's the question to say, what do you want me to stop doing? <laughs> but, but the second thing is, I mean, who's, who's going to be brutally honest on a questionnaire like that? I mean, yeah, the, 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 the wording of your question is so skillful. What, what, are others not telling me that you see? I mean, that's yeah. that's so inviting. It's great. I love it. As scripture, you know, denotes these leaders in the Old Testament, but they, they said they grew and they began skill. One of the things they highly admire is skill. They were skillful leaders. Um, and skillful leaders. I mean, there's a reason why I think most biographies of any president, uh, uh, Lincoln. But Lincoln... Because he was well versed in Shakespeare, uh, the Bible. I mean, he understood a a phrase well turned is memorable. It goes deeper. Four score and seven years ago is taken straight out of the Bible. It would resonate with a lot of these people. Who go, oh yeah, yeah, because the main theme in that whole Gettysburg Address is rebirth. Because here's his cabinet saying go give the victory speech. And he was listened, listened to their counsel, scribbled on the back of an envelope. No, the better thing right here is, yes, this is probably the turning point in the war, but this is the turning towards rebirth. 
our nation so conceived in liberty. See, that's not, that's someone who says, sticks and stones may break bones, but words, they can go, they can really go deep. Words that are, that convey a picture in people's minds where they go, hmm, yes. You know, Edward Everett Horton, former president of Harvard, was the uh, select speaker at Gettysburg. Lincoln was an afterthought. I forget who it was, came to his cabinet and said, by the way, have you thought of inviting the president? <laughs> uh, what did George speak then? Right. No one, no one remembers that. <laughs> and how long did he speak? What, wasn't it like hours? Yeah, it was like over two hours. Yeah. And uh, Lincoln, when they... Uh, passed something to the effect of um, it was kind of a bumbling speech and and Horton paid him a very high compliment that if he could have said what he's what uh, Lincoln said but he felt like he you said something powerful here um yeah it's uh I think it was a three four minute speech uh often joke preachers would do well to ponder that for a while because uh you know, he conveyed something deeply powerful in a very uh, short period of time, wrapped it around a picture. So all that to say, um, great leaders prepare for these sorts of meetings. But I, I think ultimately mentorship is, uh, I mean, Kathy has mentored me and I've mentored her, but my wife. But uh, it's partly because we really do have when we're hitting on all cylinders um you don't have to preface and i say it because there are times we're not and we've learned to hear ourselves when we say you know hey hey i want to admit, I, you know i don't want to hurt you here and then we realize uh -oh. whereas to uh to say you know for kathy the end of the night, the way home, say, so hey, uh, hey, you might want to think about the way you talk to that person. Hmm, that's helpful. That kind of relaxed, um, conveys to someone, uh, you're, you're an equal in this thing. We are fallen people. We are the often not very aware but you trust me and i trust you you don't get that very often in a work setting that uh you just have people who are, are they have uh, i'm not saying you have to be friends with everyone at work but you can treat them in such a way that they go uh I, I really like working for Pat, but Pat, if he were here and they laugh and they say, but if Pat were here, he'd say, I don't work for him. Yes, I know in the organizational chart, but we have a team yeah. and we really enjoy working together. Yeah, it's funny because I've heard, uh, there's the obvious, which you called out earlier, the my team. But another thing I really, uh, I've been trying to do is when I talk to people about this team, talk about when I joined the team, Mm -hmm. Whereas I've heard others say, you know, when I, or even as I probably used to say, when I took over the team, 
when I started managing the team, <laughs> when I took over, you know, or when, there you go. when I, yeah, even just when I started managing the team, but instead in all my conversations, even my interviews for people for potentially for the team, I talk about, you know, when I joined this team, whatever, eight months ago, and then go on to talk about the team. And, and that again, word it's just a word, but it helps reprogram my own brain to think about what is my role with this team. I joined it. I, I you know, I, I'm not, I'm not pushing the team in the direction. I'm not pulling it somewhere. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that, uh, I mean, that, so I'm, I'm laughing because, uh, so last night I was talking to a realtor and, uh, so he said, well, we have three options in front of us. And I forget what the first one was. And he said, but the second one is this kind of this meat in the middle. That's kind of like chopping the tail off a dog, you know, one inch at a time. And then the third option is da, da, da. So which one do you think we ought to do? <laughs> so I said to Dave, <laughs> well, we're certainly not going to do the second one. That's the most hideous thing I could imagine doing. But so you're right. That these, these, um, so you're right. Control, uh, you know, when I took over the team, all these things, again, Thoughtful people know it's it's almost less the words. It, what I'm going to convey is if I keep saying I, 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 I'm conveying something. I joked that years ago uh, as at a church and uh, the, the uh, preacher spoke on um, community and this and that. And I said, uh, I came up to him afterwards and I said, hey, I appreciate that. Uh, do you know every song we sang this morning was in the first person singular? I, 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 I. And also, the neuroscience tells us that music actually goes deeper into someone's psyche or the way they imagine life than, than just mere words, the combination of words attached to music. That's why you have the Psalms, the Song of Solomon. And uh, I, you know, I wasn't trying to you know, pop his balloon, but I just thought the music, it, to some degree, undermined everything he wanted to say. Which everything I wanted to say was actually very good. But that's why the power of those two put together, that's why I can, that's why, as you well know, we, we anyone, you just begin to hear a song and you know all the lyrics. And you can sing the whole thing. And then if someone says a quote from me, Psalm 1, you go, I don't know. It's because we didn't combine them. Um, so that's kind of a probably a long-winded way to say that these words we 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 convey are not just simply uh, words that are rocketing out of our mouth. They do convey, and I think there are things. Uh, here'd be something you might want to suggest to see what the team thought, or at least I keep this you know tucked away in my hip pocket. Would be I'd I'd want to benchmark that the team one day were to say. We would want this approach to bleed out into the entire company. And so benchmark for a year from now would be maybe one other team somewhere else saying, hey, we see this process you're doing. We'd like to be a part of it. We'd like to do it. Show us how you do it. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. I, I'll, I'll add on there at, at the end of the day, I <laughs> there it is at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, I'll add on there. I, I hope people don't walk away from this thinking that what we're doing is, is saying to change your words. I hope that people hear a little bit more of the, the skill 
that's involved in being a, an effective mentor and leader. Um, and, and with that, like there are things to stop doing. But one of those is changing your words. But I think it's important to also ask, well, if I just said the words my team or even, you know, a great example, why did I just say at the end of the day? You know, so like being able to stop for a minute and just ask the question, why did I just say when I took over this team? Like what, what is the meaning I'm actually conveying? What's the root of that? And it, 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 does that go back to actually how I'm interacting with my, my teammates? Am That's I right. Really being a mentor. So, so that it's that questioning that I think is so critical. That's the first step to all of this, not just changing your words. That's right. That's right. And, um, when I went through the Burnham Rosen training, uh, up in Boston, which is this high, you know, the neuroscience behind high performing leaders, you are taken to a site where there are five hand-drawn, uh, black and white, uh, just office situations. You don't know what, I mean, it's just five drawings and, um, you're asked to write five short stories and you send them in. I've. I, the number may not be exact, but it was. I was told that upwards of 40 million people over the years have done variations of this exercise. The point is, they had already charted before I walked in the door for this three-day roundtable to within 98.5% accuracy how I lead as a behave as how I behave as a leader based on those five stories and the words I used. And my scores were not good. Now, why do I say that? To your point, Pat, this isn't just about words, but they were skillful in setting up an exercise where I didn't know the end game or to quote a good friend of mine, what's going on at the end of the day. And uh, when you don't know the end game, you just look at this picture and you go, oh, okay, well, what the heck? You know, I'm going to tell a story. I'll tell a story. Here we go. This is what's going on in this one. Here's what's going on in this one. Here's what's going on in this one. Here's what's going on. And here's what's going on in this one. They take and they use all this research they've done uh, that way certain words impact people non-consciously so that over time they begin to behave other ways and whether or not this produces high-performing behaviors. And they score you. And you don't know any of this when you walk in. You don't get the scores till actually the end of three days. But isn't that mind-boggling that just five different, it's almost like if they recorded five different quick little conversations and then they went and they ran them through their grid and they sent them back to you and say, Pat, in the long run, you're going to be managing people based upon the way you just naturally converse. And it is true that the solution in their model is to re-script and re-scripting over the course of about three years actually creates new neural pathways now here's a quick re-script and then we're done for the day within a year of taking this training i came away and recognized and i wrote burnham and said it seems to me that telling people what they need to do is non-productive it's not helpful and he said, yep, that, that fits the science. And then I also went to the Bible and realized there's only two places in the Bible where anyone tells anyone they need what they need to do. And it's the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who that person was. Typical, he does it, and he doesn't tell us who he is. Uh, Jesus never told people what they need to do. 
And I realized that's really an N word in the Bible. It's, um, and I began to script that I would never again tell people what they need to do. Now, by the way, that doesn't fit in every situation. We're talking about the normal workaday world. If you're in a crowded theater and it's fire, people need to get out quick. But so I immediately in uh, the company I was working with back then began to get better performance reviews because I worked the word need out of my vocabulary. And I've coached, I'd say probably a dozen people over the years, maybe more, who have worked need out of their uh, vocabulary. They don't, they don't say, uh, hey, uh, you, you need to listen to this podcast on this. Because you tell someone what they need, they are, you are saying, you're conveying all this, you need to be managed, I know what you need, and frankly, you ultimately don't know what people need. God does, but we don't. So this other approach that we've talked about here, the asking skillful questions and what have you, to your point, is not just trying to get the words right. That's not the point. The point is to treat people as made in the image of God with as intelligent, responsible, creative beings created by God. And there is a way for us to show respect and love for them by mentoring and encouraging. But management is the antithesis of that approach. 